Morning, Glory, America, and Bonjour High Canada from the ReliefFactor.com studios inside the Beltway. It is Hugh Hewitt. The last radio hour of the week is upon us. That means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu, including the opportunity to sign up absolutely free for Imprimus. And all of their online courses, about one of which we're going to talk extensively this hour, a new one, also would remind you that every Hillsdale Dialogue that has preceded this one back to 2013 are all collected for your binge-listening pleasure at HughForHillsdale.com. Today, we are not joined by Dr. Larry Arn. Blessed are we to have relief from Dr. Arn. We're joined by Professor Kevin Porteous. He is the Professor of Politics and Director of American Studies at Hillsdale. He is a master. He got his Ph.D. from University of Dallas and his master's from the University of Dallas. But he is a proud graduate of Ashland University in Ohio, where I happen to have served as the commencement speaker a couple of years ago. So we like Ashland quite a lot. Professor Porteous, welcome back. Good to have you on the Hugh Hewitt Show today. Thank you, sir. Talk to us a little bit about the new course. I understand first lecture by Arn, last lecture by Arn, but you're doing all the work. Uh, well, I, I do have all the ones in the middle that we're going to be covering a lot of ground uh, regarding the history and development of Congress. So, uh, so how, do you, how does Dr. Ron manage to get away with that? I know he's your boss, but, I, but the idea that he gets to open and close, but then poor, you know, poor Kevin Porteous has got to do all the heavy lifting. I think there are nine lectures on Congress that you have to give. That's, that's correct, and I should probably be careful what I say because uh, uh, Dr. Ron's a wonderful boss, and I can't imagine being Oh, else, golly. So. This is, that's just... Professor abuse right there. Professor <laughs> Professor abuse syndrome. Let's talk about Congress. Uh, you know, when Dr. Arn does come on, or Matt Spaulding or any of the other colleagues, we often talk about Article 1 has abdicated. Article 1 is shorthand for the legislative authority of the Congress. Let's start at the beginning. When they got together in 1787, there was already a Congress. Why did they have to replace it? Well, the Congress that existed uh, wasn't particularly effective. It was It was developed on the basis that each state would have purely equal representation, so one state, one vote. It wasn't really representative of the people, and it didn't really have effective power. So when Congress, under the Confederation, passed a bill, it was called an ordinance, and it was really only a suggestion or a recommendation to the states, would you please do this? And and you, you just mentioned, one state, one vote. And often they had to act unanimously, did they not? That's correct. There was very little that could actually be done without, uh, without the concurrence of all the states. And, and little Rhode Island used to screw around with all of us by not sending people. As I recall, I have never studied extensively the Continental Congress except in their relations with General Washington and the Continental Army. But they were not a model of efficiency. No, that's correct. They, they, and, and even when they did manage to pass something... The Articles of Confederation didn't have any enforcement power, so there was really nothing they could do except hope the states would comply. So, Kevin Porteous, how did they actually get anything done from the time of the Revolution through the ratification and entry into force of the Constitution in 1789? Uh, I think that when they did manage to get things done, it was primarily uh, because of the, the sheer necessity of the Revolutionary War. And, and once the war ended... The, the defects of the Confederation, which were already known, obviously, to people like Washington and Hamilton, who had to deal with them firsthand uh, because of, because of the, uh, the war and the army, those really became apparent to a lot more people. All right, let's begin at the beginning. The legislative power. Uh, yesterday I played a clip, because it's Constitution Week, of Justice Antonin Scalia addressing Congress, actually, in 2011, about the genius of the Constitution, saying it's not the Bill of Rights, it's the way it was organized, and the fact that the legislative power 
was so carefully addressed. What is it generally when we talk about the legislative power? So this is something that a lot of people don't really wrap their minds around very well. We talk about the the fact that that Congress has the legislative power, and if one goes back to the root of that word, the, the legislative power is the power to make laws. But then we have to ask the question, and it's something we focus on a lot in, in the course, what's a law? And we can't simply answer that by saying, well, that's something that Congress passes, because now we've gone in a very small circle. So we have to think about what it, what it means to pass a law. What is a law? What does a law do? And, 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 and Professor Porteous, a homeowners association is a vile and terrible organization, but they exist in the lives of most people in America. They pass rules all the time. Are those laws... Well, to the extent that a homeowners association is, is a governing body, then yes. But we have to think about what it is, what's being done in the piece of legislation. Is the law telling people what they can do, what they cannot do, or what they must do? In other words, does it issue instructions to citizens regarding their specific rights and duties in a particular situation? Now, obviously, the Constitution of the United States establishes a Congress. It, it lays it out specifically. It's also bicameral. Justice Scalia, in his remarks, pointed out ours is the only one of the bigs that has a bicameral legislation, legislature in which both, uh, uh, both the Congress, uh, the House, and the Senate are real bodies that have real authority, not merely rubber-stamping stuff. That's new. Yes, and and that was designed, if one looks at the Federalist Papers, for instance, that was designed very specifically to ensure that you you got two different kinds of deliberation. You got a deliberation that was more tied to the will of the people in the House of Representatives, and you got a kind of deliberation that was able, if it so chose, to take a somewhat longer view and not worry about exactly what was going to happen at the next election. And so did it work out, in your view? Has it been successful? Well, I think that you can't... You can't look at the way the system works today and make judgments about whether or not the Constitution was successful. There's been a, over the past hundred plus years, there's, there's been a massive and intentional perversion of the original uh, way of running the government in the Constitution. How so? Well, uh, the, the beginning with the progressives and progressing throughout the 20th century, there was, for instance, with regard to Congress, a rejection of the notion that Congress can or should legislate in the way the founders understood that term. They thought that society had gotten too complicated and the issues were too technical and they require a kind of knowledge that the average voter and his elected representative simply didn't possess. And so they went about the business over the course of the 20th century of increasingly transferring this legislative power away from the people's elected representatives and toward Uh, a variety of experts, whether it's federal judges or cabinet officials or regulatory commissions. What's so interesting about that, Dr. Porteous, is that the the original Constitution provided for senators to be appointed by the state legislatures so that they would find individuals, originally just men, obviously, but now it would be open to women, who were expert in legislating. But we did away with that. Right. Part Part of what they were hoping for was to provide a layer of insulation in the, in the electoral process for senators um, with the hope, yes, in part, that, that states would have some representation, and this was part of the, the, the compromise of the convention, uh, but also that you would get a kind of what, what they thought of as a select body of men who would be able to essentially, when necessary, uh, serve as a, as, a, as a temporary break on uh, 
the will of the people when the will of the people wanted something that was either unjust or simply bad policy. I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Porteous of Hillsdale College about the brand new online Hillsdale course on the legislative power. Dr. Porteous, how much do you think the men in Philadelphia, the framers, had in mind themselves when they were thinking about the legislative power, that people as educated as themselves, as thoughtful as themselves, as vociferous or as not vociferous as themselves, would be the future legislature? I, I think that there's some truth to that. I mean, on the one hand, uh, Madison says in, in Federalist 52 and 53 that what we want, we want this body to be open to the great body of the people, and so that pretty much anybody can vote for it, pretty much anybody can serve in it, but at the same time, they also wanted a legislature that would, in Madison's words, refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of men. So, so they, they, they kind of have both expectations. They want it to be wide open, but they also want the right kind of person to, to get elected. Uh, and, and, and that right kind of person in that day was someone who was really steeped in the classics, who had read uh, in political theory and who was, and I, we're going to come back and talk about this afterward, devoted to deliberation. Yeah, and, the, and that idea of deliberation was, was hugely important. I mean, the, the, the level of education in, in American universities at that time was something that would uh, uh, make, make our undergraduates go prematurely gray. I mean, it's a presumption that one knew Latin and Greek, not as a result of one's college education, but prior to entering. Uh, but this idea of deliberation was massively important. That's, that was deliberation that was the political art that was the legislative art the, the the idea that you would think about what the good was figure out what the good is figure out what justice is but then the, the real deliberative uh, aspect of this was how do we get it in a particular situation how do we get it when we come back from break we talk about that deliberative power i would encourage you to go to online.hillsdale.edu online.hillsdale.edu every one of their online courses is there including the new course on the legislative power that Dr. Kevin Porteous, my guest, is the mainstay of. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studio inside of the Beltway. Thank you for listening. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. It's the last radio hour of the week. This week I am talking with um, Dr. Kevin Porteous, he is a professor at Hillsdale College. He is the mainstay of the brand new Hillsdale online course, Congress, how it worked and why it doesn't. It is available now. It comes in 11 different segments. Each one of them is about 35 minutes long, delivered on a new website. It's a beautiful, you can see a trailer for the course if you'd like, but mostly you want to sit down and listen 35 minutes is the perfect amount of time. I'm not sure, Professor, you'll have to tell me, Professor Porteous, how easy is it to take what is normally an hour to a two-hour course and get it down to 35 minutes? Well, it, it has its ups and downs. It, one of the nice things about it for me is that it forces me to be concise in my thought and to think about how is this, how is this going to, to resonate with someone who doesn't have the opportunity to sit in the room and have back and forth dialogue and ask questions. So, so it really forces me to be clear, and that's good for me. So I'm looking right now at the webpage for Congress, how it worked and why it doesn't. The first lecture is by Doctor on the legislative power. The second one is Law, Reason, and Deliberation by you. Would you talk a little bit about what deliberation actually means? Because when we usually hear it, it's about a jury deliberating. That's usually what we hear, but it's actually much broader than that. 
Yeah, when, when the founders talked about deliberation, and it was something that, that popped up in a number of places with regard to the legislature, and almost always with regard to the legislature, uh, they, they meant a particular kind of thinking. So, so instance, for instance, they didn't, uh, they didn't mean maybe thinking about God or thinking about your lottery numbers, because those are the kinds of things you either can't control or that it doesn't matter what you think about it, right? There, there's no way to reason your way to the correct lottery numbers. So, so for them, deliberation was thinking about the things that are within their control. So that, that's an important part of it. That is to say, um, how do we achieve justice in a particular situation? And that's how you would apply deliberation to, to politics. And the critical, important second element of this is that deliberation had to result in choice, right? The outcome of a deliberative process was a decision about what course of action to take, and that decision reflected the priorities and judgments of the legislators. And, and deliberation also is not well served by artificial boundaries. And I, I want to talk a little bit about this, because when they arrive in Philadelphia in May of 1787, they don't know long, how long they're going to stay. They don't even know if they're going to produce anything. They are not bounded by a deadline. Right, and, and that's true. And, and when, you, when you sort of take that forward into the operation of Congress after the formation of the Constitution, right, there, there's no guarantee when Congress enters into a, a, a process of deliberation that the result is going to be some, some change in legislation or some new legislation. And that's okay, right? The, the, the fact that we didn't change legislation is not a failure. And this is something we, we went through with, say, President Obama in immigration, where he gave this deadline and said, if you don't pass a law, I'm simply going to act because you failed. No, Congress hasn't failed. They've simply, uh, there's simply a judgment there that there isn't enough consensus to move forward with a change, and therefore the status quo ought to remain in force. They've made a choice. They have made a choice not to do something that they have been asked to do, and that is a deliberative choice. Now, in terms of, of what has happened to Congress, one of the things that did not happen in 1787 that happens every day is television, cable news, talk, radio, social media. Deliberation is not well served by immediate attention, true or false. Yeah, I think that's I think probably something to that. A 24-hour news cycle demands that uh, somebody has something to say about everything. And, of course, one of, the, one of the, the problems with the modern Congress, and it may have, may have happened in the past if we had had this similar technology, is that congressmen like to, to move to microphones, right, because there's hundreds of them and they need a way to stand out. And if they don't get in front of a microphone and say something, it reveals some secret or say something profound, somebody else is going to do it and steal that, steal that free media time. Yeah, and the best legislator may indeed be the individual that you never hear. Honestly, it might be the person that you never see. They might be the most effective legislator. I come back. I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Porteous. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. The brand new course on Congress is available at online.hillsdale.edu. You do not want to miss any of the 11 lectures, 35 minutes each. You'll be so much smarter for it. Dr. Kevin Porteous comes back after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue. Underway. I'm in the ReliefFactor.com studio inside of the Beltway. I am joined by Dr. Kevin Porteous, professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He, along with Dr. Arn, are launching the brand new Hillsdale online course on Congress, on the, on, on the legislative power, on what Article 1 is about and supposed to be about. It is in 11 different lectures of 
45 minutes each. You can watch according to your own schedule. It's beautifully choreographed. It's gorgeous. I've been looking at it over at online.hillsdale.edu. And I want to give you a brief idea of each of the segments of it. And this isn't going to be fair because they're each 35 minutes or so. But let's go to Lecture 3, Dr. Porteous, uh, Politics and Administration. What is that about? Well, uh the progressives uh, were extremely critical of the separation of powers. They, they saw it as, yes, it's an effective vehicle for preventing branches from accumulating power, but they never understood it as being a substantive good in itself. In other words, they, they only saw it as an obstacle to effective government. They never saw it as a means to facilitating effective government. And so they said, look, we need to replace this with something that that is more organic, that takes more account of the realities of actual governance. And and the conclusion that they came to was that there's really only two governmental activities. One is the expression of the will of the community or the state, and the other is the execution or the implementation of that will. And they named those politics and administration. And so when did the progressives seize control of this? I mean, how did they seize control of this? Well, this was... uh, for decades, they, they developed these theories, and that they just gradually began passing laws, creating entities, and then transferring legislative power piecemeal from Congress to those entities. And so you can look at things like the Federal Trade Commission in the early days of uh, the Wilson administration, for instance, transferring uh, power over unfair business practices to an agency. Uh, and, and so when they when they tried to do this, didn't members of Congress rebel? Well, uh, one of the uh, one of the interesting sort of aspects of this era was the extent to which uh, progressives in both parties, and it's something we forget, there wasn't one, there was a progressive party, but looking at the other two parties, they both had progressive and conservative elements. And in the early part of the, the 20th century, the progressive wings in both parties were, were rising in ascendance. So, yes, there were conservatives uh, and there were critics, but, but yeah, think about something like the election of 1812, where you essentially have a four-way race involving three progressives and a socialist, right? a literal the socialist party, and he did better that year than he ever did before or since. So that was the way. Prior to that time, there were two distinct periods in in history, and I want to go backwards. There is from the framing up until the 1850s and sort of the collapse of dialogue, the the collapse of deliberation that leads to the Civil War. Then there is post-Civil War through to the Progressive Era. Let's talk about the first era, Kevin. What was that? What was that characterized on all issues outside of slavery? Well, the the. Uh the Federalists and the Republicans and later the Whigs and the Democrats, they divided primarily over economic issues. So things like the tariff and the Bank of the United States and what we would today call infrastructure, but they called internal improvements. Those were the issues that, that uh, defined the period you know, post-Constitution, but prior, to, prior to, the, to slavery becoming the dominant issue. But then slavery arrived. I've been rereading uh, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. Congress broke down because it broke down over the Fugitive Slave Act. It broke down over the Missouri Compromise. It broke down because of the Dred Scott decision. It just broke down. And with it, the country, once it was reassembled and there was just a Republican Congress during the war and then Reconstruction, did it resume its old ways or had it become jaggedly political? Well, uh, you had for a long time 
uh, after the Civil War, a, a period of, of essentially one-party government, right? So, so you had, there were Democrats, and there were increasing numbers of Democrats in, in the post-Civil uh, War period. Um, and, and they essentially, Democrats in the post-Civil War period, con- conducted a kind of running battle with Republicans in the White House and in Congress to uh, sort of nullify the results of the Civil War. And so it was, it was contentious in that sense, and they were aided by a sympathetic uh, Supreme Court uh, but it really was a, a period of one-party dominance uh, in, in the post-war period, and a, and a period of uh, uh, sort of patronage and uh, you know, what was came to be considered the worst excesses of the spoil system during the latter part of the, the 19th century. And when the 1876 stalemate occurs, there's a deal struck. The Republicans get the presidency, federal troops are withdrawn from the South, and then we have the Solid South become Democratic, and politics returns through the panics, etc. But eventually, the progressives arise before World War One, and you just talked about them, and they are in the grip of the pseudo-enlightenment, I will call it, where they believe science will solve everything and that legislators are not to be preferred, but experts would be to preferred. And they went along with it, Kevin Porteous. They just went along with it. Yeah, there was, there was a sense that, that we had reached a point where the large political questions had been resolved and what was, what was left was technical implementation. But again, because society, a modern industrial society, in their view, was so complex, the, the, the old ways of doing business, which Woodrow Wilson likened to government as a kind of traffic cop, which kind of wags its finger at everybody and says, now don't anybody hurt anybody else, that, that, was, that was simply obsolete. It was inadequate to the needs of a modern state of industrialized society with massive corporations and concentrations of wealth and so on. Now, standing in the way of that was something that I teach my con law students about that's a dead letter right now, but it may be resurrected, called the non-delegation doctrine. What is that, Dr. Porteous, and why is it in abeyance right now? Right, so the non-delegation doctrine is, is the idea, going even back before the American founding into philosophers like John Locke, for instance, that says that uh, a legislature uh, cannot transfer to any other entity the legislative power which was granted to it by the people themselves in, in the formation of the government. And that was, that was something that it, it, there were cases involving it. It came up. Uh, but during the progressive era, it was it was seized on, and progressives saw this as undermining the non-delegation doctrine as critical to establishing the kind of administrative system they wanted to establish. And and when that came about, they got it done. They got it done over the objection of of conservatives. But the court had to acquiesce. When did the court acquiesce in the delegation of the legislative authority? Right, and so this is one of those this is one of those doctrines. Right, we don't. When we think about the Supreme Court today, we think about free speech, we think about abortion, we think about campaign finance. Uh, the non-delegation cases are a really obscure series of cases. And throughout the progressive era, in, in a couple of different instances, the court had been moving in this direction. But I think the real sort of turning point was in, in 1928 when the court ruled on an obscure case called uh, J.W. Hampton, Jr. and Company, versus United States. And in that case, the court, led by William Howard Taft, a supposed conservative, said that uh, as long as Congress establishes an intelligible principle to guide agency action, then there's effectively nothing constitutionally suspect about a Congress abdicating its legislative authority.
and, and the, the the intelligible principle um, dicta that is meaningless now. It has been drained of any. You know, you and I might say, "Give me an intelligible." principle and you and I will debate forever whether or not one has been put forward but in the eyes of the court if if the congress burps they find an intelligent principle there do they not yeah the, 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 there's there's essentially the principle is so broad now that there's effectively nothing that isn't going to pass the test so for instance uh, the FCC is given power to issue broadcast licenses as quote the public interest, convenience, or necessity, unquote, may require. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's largely left up to, that's left up to the agency, and then the, the court has essentially said, well, as long as they make a plausible case, then we'll go along with it. Uh, so now, when that took place and the court began to abdicate or at least acquiesce in the abdication, there also came to be known as deference. So you could delegate, and not only was that bad, then deference aligned with delegation, what's the result of that lethal combination, Kevin? What that, what that effectively means is that each administrative agency under this, this doctrine of deference is basically the sole determiner of its own powers. It gets to decide, it, it looks at the statute enacted by Congress that empowers the agency and says, okay, we think this means X. And as long as the statute doesn't clearly state otherwise, and of course that's very much in the eyes of the particular judge or justice, then the courts are obligated under the doctrine of deference to, to sign off on that interpretation. So it's, it's a cascading, first you get rid of the power, then you give the power away to an agency, then the agency gets deferred to by the courts, and therefore unelected people are running our lives. Let's talk about the era of so-called congressional reform in the 1970s. What happened? Did it work? Congressional reform uh, was actually, in the 1970s, was, a, was the culmination of a process that had been going on for decades. It progresses had a vision of what a legislature should look like. And, and to them, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the activity of the legislature, the, the model was something like the House of Commons, where you had, in their minds, stimulating and edifying debate over broad issues, uh, and, and members had to be parliamentarians, but they were also sort of zealous representatives of the interests of their constituents. And they hated the kind of stifling committee structure and, and so on that, that dominated Congress leading up to leading up to the progressive era, and so they, over the over the course of decades, really from about 1910 until the 1970s, they went about the process of decentralizing power, moving power away from first the Speaker of the House and then the committee chairman, until you got a body where power was broadly diffused, and particularly, and this was important to them, spread among the younger newer and more liberal members of the Democratic Party caucus. And so they saw decentralization as important to making Congress and the Democratic leadership more liberal. And, and that happens when? Um, well, there are a series of major reforms in the first half of the 1970s where, uh, where the, the committees begin to lose power to the subcommittees and more, there's, there's, there's a greater degree of individualism to the point where leading Democrats, and there's some great documents on this, leading Democrats begin complaining, we can't get anything done because we can't corral our own members. And so, uh, uh, you know, President Ford is going to veto this bill, and 
you know, we have 289 seats out of 435 in the House of Representatives, and we can't figure out how to get one more and, uh, and override the veto. We can't, we can't get over this hurdle because we can't mobilize our own members. Unbelievable. When we come back, our final segment about the brand new Hillsdale online course on the Congress, how it worked and why it doesn't, with Kevin Porteous of Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studio inside the Beltway. The last segment of the last radio hour, the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale, all of it collected at hillsdale.edu you can sign up for Imprimus, the free speech digest it will come to you as it does to millions of people every month you can also watch every online course including the very brand new course on congress how it worked and why it doesn't via online.hillsdale.edu the brand new course and it's going to have millions of people watch it because it's so fascinating is led by dr larry arn and kevin porteous kevin porteous is my guest right now the last couple of lectures that you give, uh, Dr. Porteous, are on the modern Congress, and this must be dreary business, uh, because they have not distinguished themselves with the exception of one great burst of legislative activity after 9-11. In fact, they, they've often abdicated to the executive here. What do you think of the modern Congress? Well, uh, we talked about delegation uh, in, some, in, in the earlier segments, and, and I really think that... Uh, Delegation for Congress has become today a kind of a kind of disease, which is to say, it's 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 reached the point where because Congress is able to abdicate authority, it really is unwilling to exercise authority. It's become so used to being able to sort of fob off responsibility onto somebody else that when something comes up where they they really ought to be doing something and people actually still expect them to do something that they really have no idea how to do it. It's reached the point where, in recent years, Congress is unwilling or unable even to pass a real budget. And this was the one thing that they kept at, with the creation, during the creation of the administrative state that allowed them to exercise some control. They could always look at bureaucrats and say, you know, we have the money and you want the money. And I think that that's even begun to, that's even begun to fade. And if you want to kind of see that visually represented... Just look at the look on Peter Strzok's face when he testified before Congress, just seething with contempt for elected representatives. And that wasn't an attitude that bureaucrats took even 20 years ago. There was contempt on on the former FBI head of counterintelligence face. There's often contempt for Congress. Let me talk to you about how to, to get rid of that contempt. Um, there also is a filibuster in the Senate, which is nothing like the filibuster that the framers had in mind. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, does the filibuster need to go, in your opinion, Dr. Porteous? Yeah, when you say that the, the filibuster is nothing like what the founders had in mind, I, th- I think that's correct. They, did, they never had in mind the idea that even in the Senate, even where you were supposed to have more deliberation, the idea that it, simply by assertion a minority could obstruct business uh, they didn't. They didn't believe that was possible. Now they wanted a talking body and they wanted debate, but they also, uh, once debate had had come to an end, they uh, they expected that a- action would be taken in some way. In other words, if a majority existed to pass the bill, they would pass the bill, and if it didn't, they wouldn't. They wanted a talking body. That, that what is a talking body? Well, they they wanted the point of the Senate, and and for a long time prior to, prior to. The institution of cloture in 1917, the mechanism for ending debate. Uh, debate in the Senate simply went on as, as long as people wanted to talk about the bill. 
And this was something you could do effectively in, in an age where the bills were short, and the bills were remarkably short uh, uh, in this period compared to legislation today. If you look at things like the, the early naturalization laws, which I've looked at, uh, the first two naturalization laws in 1790 and 1795 were two pages. Uh, you know, the Kansas-Nebraska wow. Act, which was this massive piece of legislation by the standards of the time, was about 30 or 32 pages, uh, as opposed to the massive thousand or two thousand page bills that are written by sort of sort of armies of staff and and, and so on, uh, you could do this when there wasn't a lot for Congress to do and the bills were fairly short. Now I have to I have to mention one pernicious development, staff. Uh, I have had this argument again and again. Once we professionalized staff, and I have many friends in the congressional staff, they developed an attitude towards citizens, which is of contempt, that they do not have the expertise necessary to draft legislation. That was never the intention of the framers, and I'm not sure that we don't need term limits on staff. Not members, but staff. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, at least at the lower levels, it's worth noting that, and I have a lot of students that go on to work as legislators, staffers, the, the turnover on its own in many cases is enormous. And so you do have a small cadre of people who are sort of career staffers, but you also have a large number of kids that start out and, and, uh, and don't stick with it. But I mean, to, your, to your larger point, um, in the, in, for most of the 19th century, a, a member's office was his desk in the congressional chamber. That yep. was it. There, there wasn't there was no Dirksen building, there was no Hart building, there was no Cannon building. Right? These, are, these are all creations uh, of, a more recent, uh, of more recent times. And so uh, a legislator actually drafted legislation, or draft, or his party did, and, and, he, and he introduced it. And I, I think that's part of why legislation is so, is so long and, and incomprehensible. I think another part of it, though, and, and maybe the larger part, and the reason why you need staff to draft legislation is that you need a lot of verbiage to make laws that confer special privileges and special benefits. General Amen. legislation can be great. It is a terrific brand new course. Go and watch Congress, how it worked and why it doesn't at online.hillsdale.edu. Dr. Kevin Porteous, thank you. 